My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Mormon Church and 50 Objects. Today we're on episode 24, and almost halfway through this project. Now, real quick, if you missed episode 23 where we cover the Missouri-Mormon War, I recommend you go back and listen to that episode. It'll provide a lot of background that we'll reference in the episode today. During the 1800s, being convicted of a crime in America often resulted in a harsh sentence. But to the federal and local government, no crime was considered more despicable than treason. Treason is the only crime mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. It says, Whoever owing allegiance to the United States levies war against them or adheres to their enemies within the United States is guilty of treason and shall suffer death or be imprisoned not less than five years. So, obviously, it was taken very seriously. Now, if one were to read up on the history of treasonous Americans, the list isn't very long. The person I first thought of that would top the list of treasonous Americans was Benedict Arnold. Although he definitely was a traitor, he committed his crime before the Constitution existed, so he didn't actually make the list. Since the Constitution came into effect, there have been fewer than 40 federal prosecutions for treason, and even fewer convictions. The most famous early trial for treason was that of Aaron Burr in 1807. Burr was convicted of treason for proposing to steal land in the Louisiana Purchase. However, no witnesses were found to testify against Aaron Burr, so he was acquitted. It might surprise you to know that after the Army of Northern Virginia surrendered at Appomattox, officially ending the Civil War, not one Confederate general or soldier was prosecuted for treason. It won't be until 1949 when an American is actually convicted in court for treason. Tokyo Rose would be convicted for her wartime radio broadcast to American sailors in the Pacific. However, if we were to search all the people accused to stand trial for treason, we'd find on that list some interesting names. Among them was Joseph Smith. Today's object is the Liberty Jail. So what is the Liberty Jail? The Liberty Jail is a former jailhouse in Independence, Missouri, just two blocks northwest of the Clay County Courthouse. Today, Mormons know it by its nickname as Liberty Jail, but in 1838, it was actually called the Clay County Jail. Joseph Smith, when referring to Liberty Jail, called it the worst hole we could ever find ourselves in. The actual jail itself disappeared over the years, but in the 1960s, the Mormon church bought the land where the jail stood and reconstructed it, The building was small, so they built a visitor center up around it. Today, Mormon church leaders often refer to Liberty Jail as the prison temple due to the revelations that Joseph Smith received while he was there. However, in 1838, the jail itself was quite compact. It was 14 feet squared with two levels. The upper level is where the jailers resided, and the lower level, which was referred to as the dungeon, is where Joseph Smith and the Mormon leaders were forced to sit through the Missouri winter. The walls of the jail were two feet thick, and the jail was thought to be inescapable. The dungeon had two small barred windows to offer some light, but it let in the bitter cold during the freezing Missouri winter months. Joseph Smith, Hiram Smith, and a few other Mormon church leaders would be jailed at Liberty Jail for four months while waiting their court case for treason. 
So how did Joseph Smith and the Mormon leaders wind up in the Liberty Jail? After the Mormons laid down their arms and surrendered to the Missouri militia in 1838, the Mormon-Missouri War was officially over and things looked very bleak for the Mormon Church. All that remained of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. The rest were outside of Missouri, or they had been arrested. They had either apostatized from the church or, in David Patton's situation, had been killed in battle. After their surrender, General Lucas of the militia marched Joseph and Hiram Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Parley Pratt, Lyman White, Amasa Lyman, and George Robinson to Far West to pick up some clothes for their imprisonment and to ultimately say goodbye to their families. Guards accompanied each man to their homes, and when one of Joseph's sons wouldn't let go of him, the guard shoved the boy aside with a sword and said, I'm removing the cuss words here, Get away, or I will run you through. I think if Joseph Smith were truly a fraud, now might be the time to call uncle. From far west, the prisoners were first taken to Independence and then to Richmond, where they were to be tried before a judge to determine if there was enough evidence for them to stand trial for treason. Yes, treason. The Mormons felt that if justice was done, there was no chance they'd be convicted. But would they see justice? Joseph Smith, the leadership, and nearly 30 other Mormon men were to stand trial for the Mormon raids into Davies counties and for the Battle of Crooked River. The court case would last over two weeks and would see over 40 witnesses testify against the Mormons. Among those testifying against the Mormons were Joseph Smith's old friends, Thomas Marsh, Orson Hyde, John Whitmer, and W.W. Phelps. Only seven Mormons testified or submitted affidavits on behalf of the defendants, and most of those were only for Lyman White. From reading about it, the trial was very one-sided. One Mormon wrote that the Mormon witnesses were treated so badly and intimidated to such an extent it was considered useless to attempt to make any extended defense for the Mormons. The Mormons' attorneys advised the Mormons to hold back their witnesses until the actual trial, as producing them now would allow the militia to identify them and ultimately drive them out of the state. Many of the captured Mormons were pressured to testify against Joseph Smith. One of them was a man named Chandler Holbrook, who was on record as to having been with Joseph Smith during the Missouri-Mormon War. He was pressured to testify against Joseph and was told that he would stay in prison until he was willing to testify. I love his response. He said, quote, I will sit in this dungeon until the worms carry me out of the keyhole, and even then I won't. End quote. In the end, the one-sided court found probable cause to charge Joseph Smith and five others with overt acts of treason. Parley Pratt and five others were charged with murder for the Missourian who had died in the Battle of Crooked River. The rest of the accused Mormons were immediately dismissed. So with that, Joseph and Hiram Smith and three others were taken to Liberty Jail to await their trial for treason. Now, just to pause the story here a bit, why treason? The Battle of Crooked River was county militia against county militia. The Davies County period was aggressive, but nowhere near as violent as the mobs that had driven the Mormons out of Jackson and DeWitt. What were the Mormons ultimately to do when Governor Boggs and the local government refused to help? In my view, the reason they were being charged with treason at that time was because it was one of the only offenses for which there was no bail. It seems the men of Missouri were using the Mormon leadership as hostages, as a way of saying to the general membership, we will not release them until every last Mormon is out of Missouri. Joseph Smith described the situation 
in Liberty Jail and the cause for which he was incarcerated this way, quote, The judges have gravely told us from time to time that they knew we were innocent and ought to be liberated, but they dared not administer the law unto us for fear of the mob, end quote. So, what was life like in Liberty Jail? Joseph Smith wrote, We are kept under a strong guard night and day, in a prison of double walls and doors, proscribed in our liberty of conscience. Our food is scant, uniform, and coarse. We have not the privilege of cooking for ourselves, and have been compelled to sleep on the floor with straw and not blankets sufficient to keep us warm. And when we have a fire, we are obliged to have almost a constant smoke. Now, one cringe-worthy story is that the Mormons suspected that they were from time to time fed human flesh. But comments by the guards regarding Mormon beef probably reference the cattle stolen from the Mormons and not actual human beings. True or not, the conditions were awful and the Mormons felt wrongly imprisoned and they began to send many letters to local and federal government leaders pleading assistance. None of their petitions were answered and that eventually led them to attempt a number of escapes. On one occasion, the prisoners attempted to rush the guards and overwhelm them. This didn't work, though, as the guards were armed and stopped them. The Mormons apparently got hold of an auger and attempted to dig through the walls, but the auger was discovered before they were able to get through. For all of these escape attempts, the Mormons were punished. One of the Mormons in the jail named Alexander McRae said the food provided to them was so contaminated and filthy that they could not eat until they were driven to it by hunger. All of the Mormon prisoners complained frequently about the darkness and the cold in the dungeon. Now, adding to their physical plights were the stories that reached the Mormon men about what their families and the other Mormons were going through outside of the jail. Emma Smith wrote a letter to Joseph Smith that said, quote, No one but God knows the reflections of my mind and the feelings of my heart when I left our house and home and almost all of everything that we possessed, excepting our children, and took my journey outside of the state of Missouri, leaving you shut up in that lonesome prison. But the recollection is more than human nature ought to bear. The daily sufferings of our brethren in traveling and camping out nights, and those on the other side of the river, would beggar the most lively description. End quote. Now, in this bitter and dire circumstance, Joseph Smith began to write some of the Mormon Church's most cherished revelations. With the other prisoners acting as scribes, Joseph Smith began to dictate some long revelations for the church membership outside the prison, wandering into Illinois. Joseph spoke to the Mormons in their trials and his and reminded them of the similar sufferings of early Christians and the Hebrews in the Bible. In the midst of Joseph Smith's revelations were these words, quote, Peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment, and then if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. End quote. The Mormons consumed all of Joseph's letters and revelations, copying them and spreading them among themselves all over. We have a journal entry from a Mormon who recorded that before this crisis in Missouri, Joseph Smith even visited their home and borrowed a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Joseph Smith seemed to feel something for these early first Christian martyrs and was moved by the word dissemble. The early Christians were required to dissemble or hide and conceal their beliefs. It's from reading the trials of those early Christians that Joseph Smith coined the phrase, will never dissemble, which if you're Mormon, you'll recognize from the hymn, Now Let Us Rejoice, where in verse 2 it opens with, we'll love one another and never dissemble. 
meaning we'll never shrink or hide from our beliefs. What a statement in such difficult times. Now, in later years, many of Joseph Smith's revelations were even canonized by the Mormon Church, and are now sections 121, 122, and 123 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, what did Joseph Smith and the Mormons learn from Liberty Jail? This is the big question. Joseph Smith seemed to transform in many ways while in Liberty Jail. The Mormon Church has copies of most of his letters, and in one letter, he was counseling a woman whose husband had left the church over all of these events. Joseph Smith told her to have patience with her husband, but most importantly, he spoke about how his heart yearned to be with the Mormons and how God had taught him so many new things that he wanted to teach them. Now, this is my personal opinion in many ways, but after Joseph Smith gets out of Liberty Jail, we'll see a different Mormon prophet. In the Kirtland days, Joseph Smith was in many ways separated from church members. He lived in a different city to focus on the Bible translation and to work through his revelations. In Illinois, we'll see the Mormon prophet in the middle of the Mormons leading and teaching them personally. After Liberty Jail, Joseph Smith would commit himself to never again be a victim of the law. He would really start to try to learn everything he could about the law. And lastly, the word religion comes from the same root as the word ligament. Ligaments connect muscles to bones, so the root word means to connect, to bind, or to tie together. So religion literally means continuously tying it all together. In the Liberty Jail period, with the majority of the Mormon church leaving everything they owned, and with their children in their arms, wandering into Illinois, I think we really see the Mormons find their religion. We could justly assume that with an extermination order, that would be the end of the Mormon church. But what we'll see is that they became more connected together and unified than ever. Now, adding to what they've learned, Joseph Smith would write a letter to Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball, entrusting the church to their hands while he was in jail. Generals Clark and Lucas had given the Mormons permission to stay in Caldwell County until spring if they planted no crops, but roaming mobs forced most of the Mormons to leave by midwinter. Brigham Young would organize a committee to stand and assist each other to the utmost of their ability. By pooling their property, the Mormons could afford to help all the poor until every Mormon that wanted to leave was then out of the state. Now to a deeper point, when Joseph Smith is murdered here shortly, there will be a bit of a leadership conflict among the existing and excommunicated early Mormon leaders. The reins will pass ultimately to Brigham Young in the Quorum of the Twelve, and the members will follow Brigham. Joseph Smith being in Liberty Jail seemed to really prep Brigham Young and empower the Twelve for the road ahead. In today's day, when a Mormon prophet dies, the leadership falls to the Quorum of the Twelfth, and this was setting a precedent for all of that to take place. Now, how did the Mormons get out of the Liberty Jail? On April 15th of 1839, four months after being interred in the jail, Joseph, Hiram, and the leaders were being transferred to a different jail in Boone County, Missouri in preparation for their trial. However, now that all the Mormons were gone from Missouri, they were immediately released under the guise that they had escaped. The sheriff and his men helped them saddle up their horses and ride off to rejoin the Mormons in Illinois. The treason charges against them were immediately dropped. Now what would happen to the Liberty Jail? It was torn down a short time after 1839, and a house was eventually built over the top of it. 
The Mormon church would buy the land in 1939, and in 1963 they rebuild the jail with a visitor center built up around it so that you can walk in and see a reenactment of what Joseph Smith and the leadership went through during those four difficult months. It's a pretty cool site. If you're ever in the Independence, Missouri area, you should go and check it out. So that's it for the object of the Liberty Jail. But to close, I wanted to share my favorite story from this period. It comes from the time Joseph Smith and the Mormons spent in jail in Richmond before being transferred to the Liberty Jail. This story comes directly from the journal of Parley P. Pratt, who was with Joseph Smith in that jail. According to Pratt's journal, one night in the Richmond jail, Joseph and the Mormons overheard their jailers boasting about how they defiled Mormon women during the back and forth in the previous weeks in Caldwell County. Pratt said the men felt disgusted and horrified. In Parley's words, Joseph Smith rose to his feet, ran to the bars and screamed, Silence, ye fiends of the internal pit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and hear such language. Cease such talk, or you or I die this instant. End quote. According to Parley, the guards were immediately silenced and one even apologized. Parley would write, quote, I have seen the ministers of justice clothed in magisterial robes and criminals arraigned before them while life was suspended on a breath in the courts of England. I have witnessed a Congress in solemn session to give laws to nations. I have tried to conceive of kings, of royal courts, of thrones and crowns, and of emperors assembled to decide the fate of kingdoms, but dignity and majesty I have seen but once, and it stood in chains at midnight in a dungeon in an obscure village in Missouri. End quote. I try to sound impartial, but I'm a big fan of Joseph Smith. So that's it for today. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects, Episode 24, The Liberty Jail. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at Joe, H-O-M-C, historyofmormonchurch at gmail.com. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it on social media or write me a quick review on iTunes. It means a lot. Thanks again for listening.